0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM, and it's episode 8. On today's programme, does the shape and size of your glass really influence what is inside it? We'll discuss with Master of Wine Victoria Burt whose MW research paper explored this very topic, in the context of champagne at least. Our desert island drink takes us to beautiful New Zealand with Rebecca Gibb MW, who has literally written the book on it. And we'll hear from the cognac collector, a man who's dedicated his life to sniffing out the finest aged cognac to be bottled up and sold from Wiltshire. Plus our usual selection of award-winning wines and spirits hand-picked from the IWSC Hall of Fame.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Does the shape
1: and size of your drinks glass really influence your enjoyment of what is inside it? Well, there's no shortage of glassmakers keen to tell you that it makes a huge difference, and I must admit, I am pretty convinced myself, as my burgeoning glass cupboard will attest. Master of Wine, Victoria Burt, Development Director at the Wine and Spirits Education Trust in London, takes a particular interest in this and she joins us now. Hello, Victoria.
2: Hi, David. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Oh, well, thank you for being there. And you explored glass shape and size, specifically in relation to champagne for your MW research paper. Why did you feel it was something worth exploring?
2: Well, um, at the time, there was um, a number of media articles coming out um, saying that uh, champagne producers, and critics, etc., were uh, leaning towards a sort of white wine glass rather than the traditional flute um, for champagne, and so that sort of sparked an idea of maybe I could research this um, and perhaps you know see if there is a difference between these um, glasses. Um, however, having got a psychology degree, I also wanted to look at the sort of pathways into what might be sort of affecting our perception. So in the research, I looked a little bit at what I called the uh, sort of physico-chemical way, which uh, sounds very technical, but um, that's basically, I suppose, how we might think that glassware affects our um, perception in that um, maybe certain types of glasses, you know, funnel more um, aroma compounds to our sort of receptor cells. Um, and therefore, we, we perceive that wine as being more sort of intense, for example. And the other um, pathway I wanted to look at was sort of what I called the psychological pathway, which is looking at some other senses, um, which is called sort of cross-modal processing. Do those... Um, affect the affect our perception in that if we sort of see um, a glass and we, we like it or we think that it's more appropriate um, or we're more familiar with that sort of glassware maybe that um, affects the processing in our brain and um, ultimately how we we think that we perceive the wine um, and it's been it's not a, a hugely extensive area of study but it's been studied a little bit before with different types of food um and sort of different types of beverages Um, and the main sort of um, or the most well-known probably researcher in the area is professor charles spence so if anyone's interested in sort of the psychology of food and wine perception um definitely google his name but he's done um, a, a number of researchers have done interesting research into all sorts of um ways that our environment might affect what we're sensing in terms of Uh, wine other beverages and food so he's done studies in in terms of like light um, and music and how that affects in other sort of foods and there's been studies in terms of like you know the plate um that we are served the food on and how the color of that might affect um, wow. our sensory perception, the weight of the sort of cutlery that we use. And apparently, if we have more sort of uh, cutlery with a heavier cutlery, uh, we perceive that as being sort of higher quality. And therefore, the food that we have on that cutlery also gets perceived as more pleasant and higher quality. So all these wow. things um, coming into into play. And so I thought there hasn't been um, a lot of studies into this in wine. And in fact, I couldn't find any studies into sort of the effect of sort of psychological influences glassware and champagne where um, you know glassware is uh, particularly the flute has been seen as quite iconic and sort of synonymous with this old whole drinking experience so i thought yeah it would be a interesting um area of study
1: yeah well i'll say and um how on earth do you go about testing something like that
2: um, so basically, you need to find a group of people who are happy to be uh, blindfolded in a room and be told to sort of sniff various substances. Um, but um, so I got um, 89 sort of participants, and they were all um, WSET level two and level three students, so um, enthusiastic kind of or engaged wine consumer sort of level. Um, and I split them into two groups, and one group was Uh, sighted throughout the whole experiment, and the other group was blindfolded throughout the whole experiment. Um, And each group were were tested on two champagnes and four different um, glasses, which were quite different. Um, So I tested glasses from the, the kind of straight up and down flute, so what you'd think about as a sort of traditional flute shape um a tulip flute um so a flute that looks a little bit more like a tulip or a sort of diamond shape so it's a little bit broader Uh um and then sort of funnels in at the top a uh, sort of more white wine glass which is actually um all of these glasses were from glass manufacturer Riedel. so this was a glass that they were uh, really promoting at the time as being their sort of Um, It's called the sort of Veritas um, Champagne glass, so really looking much more like a sort of uh, white wine. Um, glass kind of shape, and I also did a big um, Pinot glass. So I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're really sort of quite bulbous um, yes. yeah. glasses. Um, and again, they were sort of promoting that as maybe a glass shape that uh, sort of rose uh, sparkling wine or champagne could be um, drunk out of. So I included that as well. And so um, all of the participants um, had all the sort of two different uh, champagnes, four different glasses, and they rated each of those on aroma appeal so how much they liked the aromas and um, aroma intensity Um, and the reason for doing aromas was partially because that's what a number of sort of wine producers and critics were saying was the key difference between having the the wine in the in the flute versus the white wine glass um, and the sort of funneling um, of those aromas as part of the sort of drinking experience and partially as well because obviously in blindfolded conditions you know, if if you're sort of picking up or tasting the glass and things like that, and putting that to your lips, you're probably going to know whether that's a small sort of flute shape or whether that's a large Pinot Noir glass kind of. Yeah. So it was to not reveal that sort of um, aim of the experiment as well. So we actually had a number of servers just holding up these glasses to the blindfold participants noses, and they were just told to sort of sniff when they had a glass underneath them. So wow. to really sort of, um, yeah, keep everything as sort of blind as possible.
1: I have to say, I, I, I think I'd volunteer. If you were going to ply me with uh, champagne, I'd volunteer to be blindfolded uh, any day, probably. What did you conclude <laughs> from all of this in the end?
2: Well, I could probably sort of spend around like 10 minutes just describing um, the sort of results, but I'll give you a sort of a really sort of broad um, overview. But um, so in the sort of sighted conditions, there was an effect. And the sort of intensity and appeal ratings that the um, the participants gave and it actually showed that the the sort of traditional flute um, fared most poorly against, um, against the others so that means that when um, the participants had all that sort of information available to them so both the sort of sensory information and any sort of you know visual and tactile sort of um, information they felt that the um, the flute performed uh, less well so definitely a effect of sort of glassware in there otherwise we would have expected all of the um, all of the glasses to sort of behave or be ranked in the same way and then i was looking for the blindfolded condition in terms of you know whether the same effect was seen whether there was a different effect um you know whether there was no effect at all in which case perhaps you know, if if the effect wasn't replicated in blindfolded circumstances, that might suggest that this is all just you know psychological. So actually, there was no difference between the sort of or no statistically significant difference between the sort of sighted and the blindfolded conditions for intensity, um, which might suggest that there wasn't really particularly any sort of psychological um, effect there. However, there was for the uh, appeal or likeness. Pleasantness kind of ratings, um, in which the the results were sort of mellowed by the fact that the um, the participants were blindfolded. So in fact, you know, they were almost more harsh about sort of the flute in the um, in the sight conditions than participants were in these sort of blindfolded um, conditions there. So um, yeah, which is quite interesting actually i thought maybe the flute would do better in sighted con- conditions but maybe yeah. the sort of participants um who were all sort of as i say level two level three students um, and knew something about wine had seen some of these articles that were, were out at the time and being told that you know white wine glasses are now the thing for champagne and maybe sort of um having seen that uh, preempted that and thought no you know the flute is not the way to go so yeah um it, you know it was one experiment and it would be really interesting to sort of do something similar with different um, uh, consumer groups um, and levels of sort of knowledge and expertise and obviously different wines and things like that but um, no it's yeah. really interesting to sort of look into.
1: It's, there are obviously uh, masses of different glass shapes available for different grape varieties so Burgundy, mm. Malbec you mentioned of uh, the Pinot Noir glass, a uh, riesling glass. Do you think, I mean, I know you researched champagne rather than uh, still wines here, but uh, do you think uh, we really need that array of different glass shapes and sizes?
2: Well, I think, um I mean, clearly, I mean, it's Riedel that put in a lot of sort of research um, into this and um, have a, a full range of different glassware um, for those sort of different types of varieties. Um, and obviously, they they do a huge amount of research with tasting panels, um, you know, to select those glasses or to design the glasses that will ultimately, um, for most people, give the best experience um, of the wine. So, you know, I think as you've um, said at the beginning of the interview, I myself, like you, enjoy sort of sometimes taking, you know, two different glasses or something like that and seeing how different wines perform in them and you know anecdotally for me there's there is a difference there but it's not a major difference it's um you know it's the different glass isn't going to change a sort of you know acceptable wine into an outstanding wine and vice versa no um, that would be one hell of so... a glass
1: if it managed to do that it <laughs> <laughs> that'd be well worth buying but uh, no I, I i would agree as i said at the beginning i'm a, quite a, a convert to this aside from uh, your interest in glassware um you've dedicated your career thus far to helping educators Uh, in wines and spirits at the wset Um, are you seeing a greater interest in wine and spirit education at the moment
2: um yes i mean i mean WSET started in sort of 1969 as a sort of um you know uh educational charity for the trade and we were based in um well not me, but the company were based in um, London then, and just operating out of that base. And you know, nowadays we are—we have course providers in 70 different countries. Um, we have qualifications in 15 different languages. Um, our number of course providers is sort of you know, around 800, um, compared to that sort of one one course provider at the start. And I think definitely, I mean, that's over a long. Long time period, but even in sort of more recent years. So, for example, in sort of 2014, we were seeing around 50,000 candidates um, in that year, whereas in um, 2019, we saw over 100,000 candidates. So, you can see the sort (laughs) of uh, the real boom um, in that time. And, you know, increasingly, we're seeing um, students from outside of the UK. And um, now over sort of 80% of our business is outside of the UK. And we're seeing an increasing number of consumers. So originally, we um, we were started up to train the trade, as it were. And now we have a sort of split of, you know, around 60%, to 40% trade to consumers. So yeah, we're seeing increasing numbers of people who are doing this for, you know, enjoyment reasons, or maybe to, you know, spark a career change or something like that, but
1: yeah, really nice to see. Yeah, well, was, uh, my own career change was sparked by just that, by doing the diploma at the WSET a few years ago. So I can, uh, well, here I am. So I can uh, yeah. attest to the value of doing that. Um, Victoria, um, it's a really fascinating topic, as as you say, we we can only really s- scratch the surface of it. But uh, that was really uh, really interesting. So thanks very much for talking to us on the Drinking Hour.
2: Thanks very much, David.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world
1: it's time for the first of our recommendations from the iwsc hall of fame and here's an english sparkling to get us off with a bang Fitz brute non-vintage won a silver medal and 93 points. The judges praising cascading layers of elderflower with juicy ripe stone fruit and mandarin shining through on a fresh, balanced palette edged with buttery tones, well-structured and showing good typicity. It's a mix, I think, of Chardonnay, Savelle Blanc, Reichensteiner, Madeleine, Angevin. Some unusual grape varieties there. Worth trying. It's £22 at fits.wine. To South Africa next, and a silver medal winner from Rustenburg, John X. Merriman, 2018, won a silver, with the judges praising its lifted and elegant nose with raspberry and floral notes, poised and charming palette with dark black fruits and cigar box characters on a smooth yet restrained finish. That's a classic Bordeaux blend from Simonsburg's Stellenbosch, and it is $15.99 on a Mix 6 promotion at Majestic.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: It's time for our Desert Island Drinks feature now, and today it's an entire country, which also happens to be one of my favourite places in the entire world, New Zealand. Rebecca Gibb, a master of wine, is also something of a fan, so much so that she wrote the book on it, literally. Rebecca is author of The Wines of New Zealand which is a fantastic read there we are I've said it first so you don't uh, have to Rebecca welcome to the drinking hour
3: hello I shall employ you as my next PR
1: <laughs> I think you should um, your passion for New Zealand this amuses me no end given the rivalry between New Zealand and Australia your passion for New Zealand actually began in all places Australia didn't it explain how that happened
3: it certainly did yes yeah. so I as a, as a university student you get a very long holiday don't you sort of break up in sort of early june you don't come back till october so i had a fair few uh, months on my on my hands and it turned out that my sister at that time was a ski instructor and obviously the british summer is the australian winter so off i went to I went to a ski resort to hang out with my sister, got a job in a cafe, but whilst I was there uh, ski, being a ski bum, I met uh, somebody else who was also being a ski bum, who happened to be the daughter of um, a vi- uh, of a family that had a vine growing nursery in fact at that time it was the largest nursery in New Zealand and New Zealand in Australia they've since sold it but they also had a winery and her parents came up to visit in the ski resort and they brought lots of wine started explaining it to me and from then on I was hooked I came back to England and while I was still at university I signed myself off my first WSET course Um, and then that evolved after I left university got a job in a for a local wine merchant and and then went off to do vintage back went back, back to see them and to do vintage in australia and then went and spent a few weeks in new zealand whilst um just before i did the vintage in australia uh, happened to meet a kiwi a kiwi boy who is now my husband oh. um yeah and then we went back a few years later to live and i ended up living there for six years
1: well it kind of explains your very approachable breezy, light, fresh style, the way you communicate about wine, it, it, it really does. Um, in last week's episode, we had uh, Jancis, um, uh, the, 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 Her Majesty, really, um, and, uh, and she reflected on the fact that when she began writing about wine... Uh, in the 1970s uh, there was no such thing as marlborough sauvignon blanc and i think that would have surprised a few people it surprised my partner um and it's um, it's, it's given how much is now on our shelves mm. it is uh, really quite new isn't it it
3: really is quite new yeah i mean burgundy's got got a history of wine going back thousands of years and yeah i think the first sauvignon blanc plantings were made in like 1968 in auckland but it wasn't until 1975 that the first Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc was actually planted. Lots of people get it wrong. People, everyone says, "Oh yeah, the first Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc was planted in 1973," but actually, that's totally incorrect. Uh, so let's let's get this on the record here. The oh, first Marlborough, okay. yeah, the first Marlborough plantings of grapes were made. Vines were made in '73, but it wasn't until two years later that the first Sauvignon comes along. And obviously, as you know, David, it takes a few years to get your first crop off so the first Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc wasn't made until 1979 which was by Montana now Brancourt Estate which is now owned by Pernod Ricard Uh, yeah so it has been it is a very very recent addition to the wine world and it wasn't until the sort of 1980s that it actually made its way to the UK and that electric scintillating flavor that we now know as Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc was there from the get-go the wines were a little bit more green the more I'd say they're a bit more tropical now but yeah it really woke up people's palates at that time you know people had been used to the restrained sometimes slightly oxidized white, white wines of Europe so it was a complete Pleat, revelation mind i suppose mind, yeah it was mind-blowing yeah. for them yeah
1: <laughs> i'm reading your book uh, new zealand's wine history is is really quite ignominious isn't it i mean uh you know they had they took an awfully long time to get going and they had all sorts of problems with temperance movements and the like
3: oh absolutely yeah we, we kept we're, new zealand was definitely late to the wine party uh it wasn't i, I suppose that the first vines were planted in 1819 but really the new zealand wine scene didn't get going with any sort of, in any sort of numbers until say the 60s the 70s I mean yeah we, the problem was that in the 1800s early 1900s all the people that were moving out there were Brits so we didn't drink we did well we didn't make wine we drank whiskey and we drank beer and we took that culture over with us to New Zealand also I think that while we like to drink a lot, there was a lot of people who didn't like to drink anything. So, yeah, there was a strong temperance movement from sort of the 1890s or onwards. Potentially, you could say that lots of women women got the vote... in New Zealand they were the first to get the vote in the world in 1893 and then they shifted their attentions to temperance which culminated in a, a prohibition vote in 1919 uh, the country voted to go dry um, luckily the Anzac troops who were still stationed in Europe after World War one uh, quite liked the European wine culture that they'd seen um, uh, in, between 1914 and 1918 they kept the country wet uh, but yeah that hangover just wow. that hangover continues late into the late into the 20th century I meaning 1987 you could still went national in the general elections you could still vote on whether you wanted to go dry or not
1: that's incredible isn't it isn't so what it? changed how did the New Zealand wine scene as we know and love it now take off
3: look there was no big ban. There were, there's a book, really great, another great book on New Zealand wine history called um, Pioneers and Visionaries by Keith Stewart. I think that's what it's called. And it takes, there was these very uh, isolated groups of pioneers until about the 60s, 70s, when really you started to gain some momentum there. Also comes about through in legislative changes throughout the 20th century. You're like, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't get a beer at, uh, after six o'clock in New Zealand until the sixties. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't buy. You couldn't go for a, have a drink in a restaurant when I don't know if you heard of George Vissarovich who founded Villa Maria in nineteen sixty one. Oh yes, great man, great.
1: Man.
3: Absolutely, but he like when he um, in his in his youth, while he went just in, the, in these early days, I founded Villa Maria, and you now he had to sneak wine into into a restaurant and pour it into a into a, like a a teapot. Because you wow. couldn't drink wine in a restaurant. There it's been really slow going, but uh, in the sixties, seventies there starts to be food and wine clubs in, in New Zealand. People started to write about it in the press. Um, lots of people like my my in-laws, they started going on overseas experiences, they travelled around Europe, they went to London, you know, there's so many Kiwis and Aussies in like Hammersmith, West London, but that's been going for you know, that's been a thing since the sixties and seventies, and they started to bring back that. Cult, that European culture of food and wine back with them. So it was a slow burn, but it does gather pace.
1: So bringing us up to date, um, mm. there's a very particular character to Marlborough Sauvignon. You mm-hmm. describe that kind of electrifying uh freshness um Mm. that extrovert personality you described it as in the book um can you explain in layman's terms uh, what drives that extrovert personality in that particular (laughs) style
3: okay so you don't want no science here
1: Well, sort of science, but
3: not too difficult. (laughs) All right, okay, so obviously New Zealand in the world of wine terms is a cool climate. So it's obviously gonna be retaining its freshness. So it's always a really fresh, vibrant style. What the scientists have tried to say in Gleyman's terms is that the distinctive character of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is is tropical yet green. It always has this green nervy edge, yet it has this flamboyant tropical character, Um, but isn't completely known why this should be so uh, but you can say potentially that purity that it's maybe the clean air potentially it's the incredible intense sunlight that you get in new zealand Uh, it could also you know but to capture that to capture that extrovert character you have to do certain things in the vineyard and also in the winery to ensure that you retain that exuberance but that goes into the world of wine chemistry and i'm not sure anyone wants to hear about that
1: (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, yeah. I think we'll 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 skip that and go to uh, evolving styles because I I find um, you know um, some New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc to be a bit much. Uh, but I I had a beautiful I had a Greywack uh, Wild Ferment last night, absolutely stunning. And there is a kind of ev- evolution in Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc at the moment as well, isn't there?
3: There is an, a, a certainly an evolution occurring and. While you might find it a bit, some of them a bit much, as you say, that extrovert personality has turned lots of people on. It turned me on to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and lots of people are happy. It's easy to understand, you know what you're going to get and you know what? It's pretty joyful. Uh, it's only when you sort of get further down the like wine line when you get a bit snobby <laughs> that you are. <that laughs> what you are you saying? <laughs> I know. Like, well, no. What well, I want a bit more, a bit more refinement as well. But I think that's we are of us. We are, you know, we are quite. We are what I would call highly involved consumers. We're not. But if you're just drinking a glass of wine after work and you're not, you're not looking for that refinement. That's fine. But yes, as you say, there is there is a growing refinement. Not only not only is it coming. Not only is it coming from market demand but it's also something that's happening at ground level. The winemakers are looking to evolve the styles further, and that can be, you know whether it, it can it can be in the in the vineyard lots more people are going towards organic viticulture uh but there's also there's a ways ways to dial down that volume on marlborough sauvignon blanc in the winery whether that might be you know your hand picking or you're going for wild ferments like the one the gray wacky that you had Ooh, um yes. you, yeah you might be going for doing your fermentation in older oak formats not rather than in stainless steel with inoculated yeast to preserve that. Real exuberance, and also you know people are doing more work now with lees, those dead yeast. Um, they're actually leaving them on lees to you know develop texture uh, into yeah. So there's lots of different techniques that are being used to make a more refined or perhaps a more subtle expression of Marlborough.
1: Yeah, and I love it. But as you say, uh, what I think uh, most wine consumers really love is they know what they're going to get and they know that they're going to love it. And it always delivers. But Sauvignon Blanc is, um, I think, something like nine in ten of every bottle brought into Mm. the UK from New Zealand. Do you worry that we're missing out? Um, on quite a lot else.
3: Well, I don't lose sleep over it, David. But uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think that you have we have to be realistic here. That Sauvignon Blanc has been a hero for New Zealand. Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, for New Zealand. Sorry. Uh, it has been. Without it, New Zealand really wouldn't have found such an illustrious place on the world wine map. Every wine store has a New Zealand wine. And it generally tends to be Sauvignon Blanc, and then the others are going to follow behind it. I mean, in as you say, about nine out of ten bottles uh, or litres of wine that leave New Zealand ports are Sauvignon Blanc, uh, while it only makes up about sixty percent of plantings. Uh, for some people, yeah, New Zealand is the start and the end of their New Zealand wine journey but for many others it acts as a gateway and there are so many other varieties that it could lead you on to and gosh we're trying we're trying we're doing so much like the New Zealand wine industry is doing so much work to develop greater diversity and to show the world that they have more than Sauvignon Blanc let's not forget the New Zealand wine industry is really like just leaving its infancy now, it's really only in its adolescence. Uh, there's still a lot more history to be written.
1: So, just lead us on then. What else should we be trying?
3: Gosh, where do we start? I recently did an alternative, I'm going to be doing an alternative, I recently did an alternative varieties uh, seminar. And there are maybe 40, 50 varieties that are planted in New Zealand at this time. But for me, what I find, what I find, often find are the most rewarding wines is white wines is chardonnay oh yes Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I think that the other thing is that lots of people, especially in the UK, there's a great reputation that Cumia River has developed. as a great Chardonnay producer. But really, you need to scratch beneath that surface. There's so much excitement going on in Chardonnay, incredibly refined wines. um, You know, and if you look at the Marlborough, if you look at the comparisons between the Marlborough climate and the Dijon climate, there's not much in it, to be honest. So it's got it really has the climate to make absolutely superlative Chardonnays. But for me, when it comes, I mean, Pinot Noir is obviously New Zealand's red calling card. It's its leading, most planted variety. And yet for me, Syrah is the most distinctive, most idiosyncratic red variety that New Zealand has. And that's where my heart lies.
1: Yeah, and you've done some really good masterclasses with uh, the New Zealand Wine uh, Marketing uh, Board uh, around Syrah. they they've just—I agree with you. I mean, it's it's incredibly small, though, isn't it, in terms of uh, what we see coming into our market in terms of uh, of Syrah and Chardonnay, I suppose, as well.
3: Oh yeah, no, but, uh, yeah it's, I know. Mean, but I mean, plantings are quite small too. But I feel that people have not yet truly discovered. But when you think when you think about the UK market, it really is the shop window for the world. There are so many other wines from around the world to drink. So we are a little bit spoilt here. So there are, you know, when it comes to Chardonnay, you can buy it from, you know, 40 other countries. So there has to be a real, there has to be a real incentive to buy New Zealand Chardonnay in the UK. And we're a quite price sensitive market as well. And it doesn't come cheap, so we have to we have we have to take all that into
1: account. Chris Stroud at the New Zealand Wine uh, Organisation would uh, kill me if I didn't mention sustainability. Oh God! Do we have to? um, Well, we do really, I think, because it is the most extraordinarily (laughs) successful sustainability scheme. I can't think of another one that has as many people signed up in any other uh, wine-producing country.
3: Yeah, when whenever I'm told that to, I need to speak about sustainability when I'm doing the New Zealand wine, when I'm doing work New Zealand wine, I do roll my eyes a bit. Um, it's such an overused word. Everybody, I mean, wherever, whatever wine region you go to, everyone wants to tell you about the sustainability programme. It's sort of getting a bit tiresome, to be honest. And... Uh, and i think that one of the reasons why there's so many people signed up to it is you can't enter you can't enter the new zealand wine awards if you're not a member of it and you can't have any press visitors i think there's a couple of wineries that don't sign up and they don't get any visitors on the new zealand wine program because they don't want to pay
1: yeah well it's one way of achieving it isn't it but it's uh... one way of
3: it. i mean look it's it's, it's i mean it's well intentioned and it has and it has made a difference lots of uh, but at the same time, I wonder whether A, goes far enough, and B, whether, well, yeah, I I, th- I know there are producers who uh, farm, organic, farm organically but do not belong to the programme because of yeah, their
1: own private links. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. In the book, <laughs> you describe North Canterbury mm. as the hottest place to be right now. I, I'm assuming mm-hmm. you're talking metaphorically rather than <laughs> literal temperature uh, <laughs> gauges. But uh, why so? Because that's not a well-known uh, producing region uh, compared to some of the others, is it?
3: No, I think it's. I think that's probably why I say it's hot right now because I still think that it is un, it's under the radar still and it's a little-known gem. Uh, it has but it has a group of people that are dynamic, they are talented, and they're quite young. You're there, most of them are in their early to mid forties, and they're gonna be around for the next 20, 30 years um doing some incredible stuff. Uh, they're not afraid to take, they're not afraid to take risks or do trials, say whether it's greystone or whether it's Black Day or Pegasus Bay, one of the but I think one of the things why it's still under the radar is that it doesn't focus on Sauvignon Blanc. Its two calling cards are Riesling for in white varieties so that makes these incredibly um beautifully spiced um, slightly orangest infused rieslings and they make mm. incredibly this be- these beautiful brooding Pinot Noir they have they especially on the hills in in they have these the thing called the home omehi hills and they have some clay and limestone there that make these broody meaty spicy Pinos, and you also got um, a small sub region called the Waikari, which is where uh, Bell Hill and Pyramid Valley are based, and that's on limestone. So, for me, this is a region that has not yet truly been discovered. You know, everyone has heard of Central Otago, and it has already been discovered, but I feel like that it might be the next thing.
1: Great. Well look out some of those wines. Um, mm. if there was one specific New Zealand desert island wine oh, for you. David. I know I know it's a difficult <laughs> question, but um, what do you think it would be?
3: I don't think this is gonna come as a big surprise to New Zealand wine lovers, unfortunately. But I think it would have to be Trinity Hills homage and it would have to be a one that has at least oh, eight, ten years a bottle aid on it. So Trinity Hills homage is a Syrah and it's from the gimlet Gravels region and it often has quite a high percentage of whole bunch in it. And it really is superlative Syrah. I think it's been used in Master of Wine exams and regularly gets mistaken for high end Northern Rhone Syrah. Yeah.
0: Uh, just—it
3: is a lovely wine, and it's just so tenderly made by a man called Warren Warren Gibson. He's really smart and just sensitive, and and it's it's it always it ne- it's ne- it's never a forced wine. And, you know, there are plenty of forced wines out there in the world, and this is not one of them.
1: Well, it's a great choice. Um, it's always uh, delightful talking to you. Uh, thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating. And the book is still available, isn't it, to buy?
3: Absolutely, through all good book sellers. Won't mention any names, but, you know, on the internet, you know where to go.
1: Yeah, OK. <laughs> wines of New Zealand, Rebecca Gibb, MW. Um, thank you very much, Rebecca.
3: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. We are listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Time for some more recommendations. How about a gold medal-winning whiskey? Chivas Regal, 12-year-old blended Scotch whiskey, won 95 points. The judges saying, soft and mellow with a round and elegant nose, sweet honeyed fruits on the palate with a hint of oak on the finish and that is 1995 at masterofmalt.com which is not bad at all for a gold medal winner and another gold winner this time a wine from morrisons the best amaroni della valpolicella 2017 Won 96 points with the judges praising its excellent combination of boiled plums and black forest fruits, bringing a complexity of leather to the taste explosion. Smooth with delicacy of tannins, allowing the minerality to come through. Everything that this wine should be. Exquisite, they said. And that's currently just £14 at Morrison's.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. The world of cognac
1: is dominated by big brands, purveyors of luxury, themselves often owned by even bigger groups selling opulence to the world. Travel to the region, however, and you'll also encounter artisans, smaller producers for whom the eau de vie is often the sole focus. David Baker, our next guest, does just that Uh, touring Cognac to select rare aged examples to bring back to the UK to sell under his Herbitage brand and he's been described as a brandy archaeologist which is a my kind of archaeology I think and he joins us now from uh, Wiltshire. Uh, David welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hello. So to understand uh, what it is that makes what you do so special we first really have to talk about the way that Cognac operates it's dominated as i mentioned by these big brands and it might surprise some of our listeners that these brands don't generally actually grow grapes do they
4: yes some of them do um but very very small quantities probably 95 or even higher percentage than that um is what they will buy in from the hundreds of small producers scattered all over the region Um, they'll try and buy their grapes from the from the better regions, but obviously the demand um, for cognac is growing to the extent that they will have to virtually look at anybody who can supply them these days. So how do you go about sourcing the cognacs
1: that you uh, curate for sale then?
4: Well, in reality, it's about travel. I have to go down to cognac quite a lot. uh, And I've started um, really to get quite well known in the area i think a lot of people will bring their cognacs to me um but also i think you've got to understand that we're sort of people that will look for specific types of cognacs and we'll raise specifically uh, for cognacs from the premier crew which is called Grand champagne uh, and we'll try to buy those so we do if you like have, um, Restrict the areas that we're looking for them to the very finest that you can you, that you can source, uh, and in that in that sort of circle, there are still probably hundreds of people that are actually making cognacs to the sort of. Which is that we want.
1: And how did you get into this in the first place? Did you have a, a lifelong love of cognac then?
4: I started I started drinking cognac when I was actually quite young, but in fact, in those days, I, I, I started drinking wines uh, as a bribe to practice my music for my music teacher. I was. <laughs> young at the time, um, and she used to give me a glass of wine, and the, the, the details on the back of the labels. You could take labels off bottles of wine in those days, and I, and I put the taste on it. And that, I think, really started me off on cognacs, because after a period of time, I started to look at things which I wanted more complexity and flavor and, and more interest. And cognac is an interesting product, because you, you're not just actually making a drink by distillation, you're aging it, um, you're growing a wine, you're making the wine appropriate for distillation, and you're having all the various um, problems that one would have with, with making um, a distillate from size of still, the, the temperature you use, the range of alcohol, and all that sort of thing, which which will create quite a complex situ- situation. And, and I think that um, that really was my starting block, and, and by the time I got to about sort of 25, I was, I was thinking, oh, I, I need to sort of look at something a bit more, and, and I've really been looking at cognacs ever since then, well, that's 50 years almost now, so yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, you've obviously got a, a very good nose for it. How do you go about acquiring the skills to uh, to sniff out a good cognac? Because when you see the cellar masters, they're all using their noses, aren't they?
4: They are. But these are individuals who have got their own particular styles and their own individual qualities. Uh, They will be looking to perfect those as much as possible. For me, it's a slightly different story because I'm not just looking at theirs. I'm looking at the hundreds of different producers and they all have different qualities, they all have different styles and aromas and tastes which we're looking for. Uh, and so we have a, for our cognacs, we're looking really for a sort of taste profile um, which is going to give us um, the sort of qualities that we believe our customers are going to want. So it's a very simple question. But in your opinion, what makes a good cognac? Uh, well, that's, 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 that's a very simple question with a very complicated answer, really. It's about, it's about balance, I think. Um, it's about the, the balance between fineness, acidity, and flavor. When you make a cognac, you're basically making it under a specific set of rules. But there are variations within that rule those variations can include the size of the stills the time it takes to actually make it the distillation ranges where you where you um make the cut in the distillation and there's a lot of different things which you can consider which are going to change it but perhaps more importantly than that is the aging process uh, and it's the, this aging process which is so important um, because the longer a cognac is in the barrel, um, the softer and more gentle it's going to become. And balance is about getting as much flavor as you can without the five aggressive burn that you get. And depending largely on the still um, and, and the distillation process and the period of time that it's been in the cellar, uh, that means that you can actually find the qualities that you're looking for. But of course, the modern cognacs, on the other hand, can't wait that long, they have to use alternative methods to be able to to get the balance and usually that includes things like sugar syrups and and colouring and and things like that to be able to to give uh, desired qualities.
1: Fine cognac offers this incredible complexity that you referred to there, and it has its own uh, tasting terminology to an extent. Could you explain what is meant by the important term rancio? Yes,
4: this is, this, this is um, something which we would look for in a cognac which is perhaps um, 50, 60 years old. Rancio is the effect um, which is created um, from the cognac in the barrel after it's used up some of the tannins or, or most of the tannins in the barrel and there's there are other chemicals in there, most of which are what we call hemicellulose which he, this is what gives it this incredible richness and a rancio is effectively an enrichment of a cognac you can often taste this rancio with this much richer flavour but you don't find it in in, con, in young cognacs you only find it in cognacs which have been in a barrel perhaps 50, 60 years, and particularly those in the top crew, Grand Champagne, we would expect to see after Asia we would expect to see these sorts of qualities. And will cognac just keep on getting
1: better as it gets older and older, or will it eventually fade like a wine?
4: Um, Yes, but I think it's important to emphasise that it will keep getting better in a barrel. Once you take the cognac out of the barrel and put it into the bottle, um, that's when maturity, maturing of the cognac ceases. Uh, And we're not really sort of interested after that stage, so it's the stage when, from distillation to when you take it out of the barrel that's important, Um, and it will keep getting better and better, up to a range probably 70-80 years um, for the very best cognacs. But after that period of time, you'll find that the cognac will remain or perhaps even not go off quality a little bit. So it is important to know when to take it out of the barrel. And at that stage, what we would normally do is take it out of the barrel, if we're going to keep it or continue to keep it, we take it out of the barrel and put it into what we call bonbons, which are like big glass demi and seal them so that the air can't get in and obviously the spirit can't get out. Uh, But, as I say, about 80 years. We have come across periods when on the odd occasion, we've got one very special cognac, in fact, where it was taken out of the barrel after 100 years. It had actually gone off a bit, but then put into another barrel for 10 years, and it's probably one of the finest cognacs we've ever tasted. So, the use of wood um, is basically to extract the tannins and, and, and and the hemicellulose which is in the bowels, into the cognac and give it that richness. And what's the oldest cognac you've ever tasted? Well, I've tasted. Again, it's a. It. It. When we talk about age, and if, if we talk about the number of years that when it was made, um, probably the oldest one was. Well, I think I had an eight, a 1789 once. I tasted several 1805s, but of course cognacs once they, we, we refer to the age of a cognac as its bowel age rather than its calendar age so to speak
1: wow that's incredible and how was that uh, 1805 and that 1789 tasting
4: i think in those days and they, they their knowledge and understanding of distillation and aging was a little bit more hit and miss um they for example when it was ready for um, the distillation, t- um, to take it off, take it out of the uh, the still, um, they would use a little um, gas bottle and put uh, a, a quantity of the sort of water clear O2B into it and shake it. And when three bubbles occurred, they called it 12-pearl. That was the time to take it out. So it was a little bit hit and miss. Of course, nowadays, we can measure things uh, much more scientifically uh, and know when we can take it out uh, of the bowel and and, and start the Asian process. And, And then, of course, that's that's much better um from our point of view
1: how do you enjoy cognac do you have a favorite time of the day for it is it always a dig- uh, digestif for you for example
4: uh, actually yes I, I i do i mean i i think you know you have to understand i taste hundreds of cognac so um when we taste them we're, we're tasting them and sort of swirling them around and sort of spitting them out um but of course when one does have the time to sit down and enjoy one. I think, probably, it's quite nice to have one sort of mid to late morning, um, because that is the time, actually, when your mouth um, is most sensitive to flavour and you can get more enjoyment, more pleasure from it, but I think it's not just about the flavor, it's about the aroma as well, and you have to make sure that, you know, with these cognacs that they have got a a nice aroma, because half the enjoyment uh, of drinking a good cognac is, is, is the aroma, so not that we just need to have a nice flavour. We need to have a nice aroma with it as well. And with the older cognacs, of course, that's when you get those sort of qualities combined.
1: It sounds very so- chilly in having a mid-morning cognac, doesn't it? No, I, I approve very much. But uh, you, you very kindly sent me a, a couple of absolutely fantastic samples, including an 1890. Is that the oldest cognac you sell?
4: um No, we have. We've got an 1880 at the moment. The 1890 is a new one, which is just we've. We we discovered you know, at the end of last year and we ran a series of tests on it and we found that to be a very, very good cognac and so we decided that we would try and and uh, sell that one. We do have a lot of customers because these days uh, one of the, um, the the key markets for these old cognacs is, is, is what we call the private client market where people will buy these cognacs for investment purposes um, because they are obviously going to Um, increase in value um, considerably.
1: Well, it's uh, a really sound investment, I reckon, but it's also uh, extremely complex and delicious to taste. So I uh, wish you the very best of luck with your uh, 1880 and your 1890. Um, Enjoy a a mid-morning cognac now we're finished. And thank you very much, uh, David. It's really fascinating talking to you.
4: It's a pleasure. The Drinking
0: Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Our final recommendations for this edition of The Drinking Hour and the first is from Spain, a gold medal winning Rioja Gran Reserva 2008 from Don Jacopo, described by the judges as powerfully generous but elegant. It's packed with ripe fruit, wild strawberry and damson with well-integrated oak and firm tannins. A savoury personality is also demonstrated with notes of leather, mouth-watering, and a poised finish. And here's a whisky to round off. Single grains are back in fashion. So here's Teisteel Explorer Grain Scotch Whisky, which won a silver 91 points. The judges describing green pear and apple on the nose with some waxy honeyed notes. Very soft and approachable, grapefruit and pear notes on the palate with a complex finish. And that is £27.95 at masterofmalt.com. And that's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour, I'm afraid. If you liked what you heard, please do tune in again. If you wouldn't mind giving us a little five-star rating on iTunes, if that's where you're hearing it, then that would be very nice of you. And you can contact us if you want to, the drinking Hour at foodfmradio.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FoodFM Radio, and I am at Mr. Venusaurus on both Insta and Twitter. For now though, thanks for tuning in and goodbye.
0: The drinking
4: hour on Food FM.